Thanks, John, for uh, leading us in prayer and reading scripture. And by the way, John mentioned in prayer, and I didn't mention it earlier, uh, we are excited actually to have Keith Williams come on board as a intern here at Grace Valley Church. Keith, can you just stand up for a, a moment, please? There he is. Many of you know Keith already, but if you don't, that's most of what he looks like. Uh, Keith is in his final year at Heritage Seminary in Cambridge, and part of his uh, education is he has to do an internship at a church uh, as he is testing his gifts and calling to a ministry. So for the next eight months, Keith is going to be with us, and he's going to be uh, leading some things and doing some preaching, and uh, he'll be involved in a bit of pastoral care work with me and uh, invited to participate in leadership because these are waves for uh, a young man to test his gifts and to, to see if uh, God is calling him into pastoral ministry. So you're going to see Keith around more and more as the, uh, as the year unfolds. Now, we have been looking at uh, metaphors for the church. We just started this last week, and there's a number of metaphors for the church, and we're doing this because we're trying really hard this fall to kind of get back to church, <laughs> get back to church life. And frankly... Uh, that's a bit of a slog for some of us, right? Um, I don't know if you know this, but uh, when, when Stelco was at the point of possibly shutting down and closing down for a period of time, there was a lot of talk about whether or not it should be fully shut down or if the furnaces should remain on because once you shut down those furnaces that melt the steel so that it can be shaped, etc., it apparently takes months to refire these furnaces and to get them back up to the temperature they need to be at in order to uh, run these, these, these furnaces and get this, this steel to melt, etc. Why do I use that as an illustration? Well, because it takes a while when a church has sort of been out of rhythm to get back into rhythm. Uh, and so we are looking at these metaphors of the church to understand the importance of the church and uh, who, what the church is to God. We learn about God himself through these metaphors and we learn something about ourselves as well. And today we're looking at, I bet you can guess, the metaphor of the flock. The metaphor of the flock. This is perhaps the most ubiquitous metaphor of the church throughout the entire scripture. Of course, we see it in the Psalms as we just read Psalm 100 uh, a minute ago, and you see it in the prophets throughout the Old Testament. You see it in Jesus' words in our passage here um, in John chapter 10. Over and over and over and over and over again, the Bible calls the people of God his flock, his flock of sheep, in fact. And it makes some sense because, um, you know, Sheep played a really, really big part in the economy of the Old Testament Israelites and also of the first century Israelites. And that's because uh, sheep provided food, sheep provided clothing. Uh, the ancient Near East or the, the, the Eastern Mediterranean uh, area in which the scriptures uh, are located uh, was an arid land. There's not a lot of water and a lot of rainfall, and sheep actually are quite hardy. They can, they can handle uh, not having a ton of water and even, in fact, not having a ton of grazing uh, grass to graze, etc., and they move easily around in an arid land, etc. And so being a sheep herder made sense. And that's why the Bible is full of sheep herders. Of, of course, all the patriarchs were sheep herders and... Uh, 
the, the Israelites as a nation were a sheep herding nation, etc. And that makes, of course, this, this, uh, this metaphor a very, very rich metaphor, which we cannot comprehensively study together in one morning. So what we're going to do is we're going to just drill down onto three aspects of this metaphor together. We're going we're gonna to think about how this metaphor of the Bible calling us sheep and a flock, how it humbles us, then we're going to think about how it actually elevates us, and then we're going to think about the implications of how it encourages us to be together. Okay? How it humbles us, how it elevates us, how it encourages us to be together. Here we go. First of all, how it humbles us. Both our texts, as I said, mention that we are like sheep. We are the people of God's pasture, and Jesus in John chapter 10 is talking about his sheep constantly, over and over and over again. And there are some traits about sheep that once you discover them, you find it rather humbling that the Bible would call you and call me a sheep. You know, Sheep are, um, are uniquely unintelligent, <laughs> they are extremely needy, and they are highly vulnerable animals. Some of you may have heard of a guy by the name of John Stott. He's passed away now, but he was a wonderful uh, Anglican preacher and pastor and writer. And he had a cottage in, uh, in somewhere in Wales. And uh, he talked to his neighbor, who was a sheep herder, and this is what he said this sheep herder told him. Sheep are not at all the clean and cuddly creatures they look from a distance. On the contrary, they are dirty and subject to nasty pests. They need to be regularly dipped in strong chemicals in order to rid them of lice, ticks, and worms. They are also unintelligent and obstinate. This is what John Stott was told by his sheep herding neighbor. And Stott continues and says, I hesitate to describe the people of God as dirty, literally louse, lousy or lousy. You know, when you get de-loused, you get the lice taken off you. And stupid, but that's the force of the image. This is what the Bible calls us, people. Thank you, Lord for calling me a sheep. Why on earth does the Bible call us sheep? I mean, if you free other kinds of animals, like let them go, they will either run wild or they will return home, right? You've heard stories of dogs, you know, that, you know, they got left at a camping trip or something like that and they traveled like a hundred kilometers or a thousand kilometers or whatever it is to make their way home. Or you've heard stories perhaps of horses that were, that broke free from their corral and then they're found roaming the plains of Montana and that kind of thing. A horse without a rancher goes wild. A sheep without a shepherd dies. When a sheep is set free, a sheep looks around and it wanders around aimlessly and it says, what's for dinner and who's going to feed me and where am I? That's how a sheep behaves. behaves. And did you know that sheep, I, you know, I had to do a little bit of research on sheep because it's not exactly my forte, but anyhow, I did a little bit of research and I discovered that sheep are so dumb that they will continue to wander aimlessly even if the sheepfold that they are a part of is in sight. They still can't find their way back. And if they're not 
watched carefully by a shepherd, they will eat almost, they're not quite as bad as goats, but they will eat almost anything in front of them. They will eat poison and die unless they are protected. And I learned that, and I learned this, this actually happens in the Netherlands a lot, um, if a sheep falls over on its back, and there's all these water ditches on these, these past, in these pasture lands in the Netherlands, if they fall on their back, they will just lay there and go like this unless someone tips them over again. Isn't that humbling? If you think about because like I said, the Bible says that's you and that's me. The Bible says that you and I are vulnerable, that we are needy, that we are impressionable, that we can easily be led astray. That's us. Now, I know we don't like that, and the reason I know we don't like that is because we actually have terms and phrases that we use to kind of describe people who are sheep, and every single one of them is negative, right? You know, those, those people are like sheep. They're just following the crowd, right? You ever, ever heard that phrase, like a lamb to the slaughter? It's because sheep are one of the only animals that does not, and maybe is the only animal. I couldn't find out if it was actually the only animal, but is certainly one of the only animals that does not fight when it's being brought to slaughter because they're so dumb, they don't know what's happening to them. They are timid, they are dependent, they are impressionable, they are dumb. Have you ever heard the phrase, uh, if sheep could talk? Basically, if sheep could talk, nothing meaningful would come out of their mouths. You know, so if someone is saying something dumb to you or foolish to you, you just go, yeah, if sheep could talk. There, you can use that one. You know, parents, no. Kids, no. Don't anybody use it, because it's unkind. It's negative. Everywhere we look, negative things are said about sheep, and sheep are used negatively even in our own, uh, in our own metaphors. We are like sheep, the Bible says, but we, we, we don't believe it. We think that we are independent thinkers. We think that we are autonomous human beings who make our own decisions and decide for ourselves what is right and what is wrong, that we use reason and we use research to come to our conclusions, when in reality we are far more impressionable, we, fall, we, we are far more uh, led astray than we are willing to believe. Think about this. We are all products of our culture. Many of the things that we believe, we believe them because we live in the culture in which we live. I'll give you an example. If you take what the Bible has to say about sexuality and family and go to a traditional culture or a Middle East, like in the Middle East or in South Asia or these kinds of places, people in those cultures will happily agree with what the Bible has to say about those things. In our culture, people are offended by what the Bible has to say about those things. And you take what the Bible has to say about forgiveness and compassion and loving your enemy and caring for the poor, and you share those things with people in our culture, and people say, yes and amen, I believe in that, and I love that, and I agree with that. And you take those same things to the other cultures, and they say, love your enemies? You can't survive if you love your enemies, because your enemies are literal, physical enemies. We are products of our culture. Many of the things that we believe, we believe them because of where we live. The idea that, that, that all religions are the same and that they all basically teach the same thing. Did you know that it is only modern Western culture, Western Europe, North America, that believes that? 
I spent two and a half weeks in West Africa 10 years ago, and I can tell you right now, when I was talking to many of the great, wonderful Muslim people there that, that I was able to encounter, none of them thought that all religions were the same because they understood that all religions say very, very different things and therefore they can't all be the same. This is something that we believe as part of being in this culture and swimming in this culture. I talked about that a lot last week, so I won't carry on. We are also products of our time. We are products of our time. You live now. Some of us have grandparents, and sometimes when you sit with your grandparents and you're just shooting the breeze, so to speak, and just talking about stuff, occasionally a grandparent will say something that makes you go, whoa, you know, you can't say that anymore. Why? Because you're a product of your time, and they're a product of their time, and things have changed, and therefore some of the things that we are allowed to say or not allowed to say have changed. Some of the things, some of you have grown up in Christian families, and in those Christian families, the, what you're allowed to do, what you're not allowed to do has changed because of time. My wife tells the story of someone she knew who, when movie theaters first came out, stood in front of movie theaters pleading with people not to go in because they would be corrupted by it. Some of you maybe remember being told that playing cards is a form of gambling and therefore there will be no cards in this household. You're a product of your time, you're a product of your culture. We are far more easily led by these influences than we are willing to admit. And so what do we do when we are so easily led astray? We look for shepherds. We do. Even when we're trying not to be led astray, we're looking for shepherds. When you're trying to understand COVID and the, the issues around the vaccines and all that kind of stuff, what are you doing? You're looking for shepherds. You're looking for experts. You're looking for people to lead you and guide you. But on a much grander scale, we're also looking for uh, uh, shepherds. When I say grander scale, I mean when we try to think about things like, what is life really for? What should, I be, what should I be living for? What matters and what doesn't matter in a world of so many choices? What should I actually be chasing? You are looking to shepherds. The problem is, is that very often we are led astray, not by shepherds, but what Jesus calls hired hands. You know, in this passage, he talks about these hired hands, right? What does he say, beginning in verse 12? The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. This is very often what we discover when we put our hopes and dreams in promises and uh, goals that are set before us by our culture, and then we discover that even as we pursue them, and even if we succeed in achieving some of them, they end up as ash. In our, in our mouths, they, they end up not satisfying the way they promised. I forget his name now, but the man who wrote the book, The Eagle Has Landed, very famous American book, he, he was asked, what, what do you wish you were told when you were young that you know now? And he said, I wish somebody had told me when I was young that when you make it to the top, you discover there's nothing there. We follow these hired hands. Why? Because we are sheep. And we desperately need a shepherd. Okay. Point two. You've been humbled, I hope. The great thing about this metaphor, though, is it doesn't just humble us, it also elevates us. 
It also elevates us. See, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you have put your trust in him, if you believe that he is the son of God who lived for you and died for you and now holds your life in the palm of his hand and he calls you not to just follow him in obedience but to, to, to love him with everything that you are and that you have, Jesus is your shepherd. And you know what that means? He's responsible for you. He's responsible for you because that's what a shepherd does for sheep. It takes care of them. They guide sheep. They protect sheep. They provide for sheep. And this elevates you and elevates me. And it does it in two ways. First of all, notice what Jesus says in verse 14 and following. I am the good shepherd. shepherd, In verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep. I know my sheep. This is an interesting thing about shepherds. Shepherds know their sheep intimately, individually, and comprehensively. There's a guy by the name of Dan McMillan, and he is a Scottish preacher who used to be a sheep herder. And he tells the story of how he was talking with one of his friends who had 300 lambs that he sold uh, and they were going to be food, I suppose. I mean, let's face it, that's what sheep are raised for, basically. So they were going to be food. Anyhow, he, he sold off these 300 sheep and he was on a train through Scotland and Scotland has all these beautiful highlands and pastures where sheep roam and stuff. And he went through an area where they actually gather sheep uh, to, to be brought to, to the slaughterhouse. And there were like 3,000 sheep on a hillside. And he looked over and he recognized a bunch of his lambs in that group of 3,000. Now, if he was telling you that story and he was telling me that story, you'd be like, yeah, right, come on. A sheep is a sheep is a sheep is a sheep, right? They're fluffy, they're white, they go bat, like... What's there more to know? But this Dan McMillan guy said, he said, I knew immediately exactly what he was saying. Shepherds know their sheep intimately, comprehensively, individually. And that means when Jesus says, I know my sheep, that means that if you are his, he knows you intimately. He knows you individually. He knows you comprehensively. It means that you are unique. You are, in fact, valued uniquely. Jesus loves you in a way he doesn't love anybody else in the world because you are you. Do you notice that as a parent that you love all your kids the same to the same degree, but you love them in different ways? Well, the same is true of Jesus with you and with me. He knows your specific fears. He knows your specific worries. He knows your specific sins. He knows your hopes. He knows your dreams. He knows the things that freak you out. He knows the things that make you stay up at night and have a hard time falling asleep. He knows all of those things about you. He knows you intimacy and he, in, intimately, and he knows all your flaws. And he knows that as one of his beloved sheep, you are nevertheless prone to wander. That you are impressionable. 
and he knows you better than you know yourself. There's this beautiful place in John chapter 2. John chapter 2, Jesus meets Nathaniel, and he says, well, there is a man in whom there is no deceit. Meets him for the first time. And Jesus says, or sorry, Nathaniel says, uh, do I know you? <laughs> and how do you know me? And Jesus says, well, I saw you under the, under the fig tree. And Nathaniel goes, surely you are the son of God. Why did he say that? Well, Jesus knew something about him. We don't know what it was that Jesus saw, but we know that it was very personal, that it was very special, that it was very important to Nathaniel, whatever it was. And Jesus saw Nathaniel fully and completely. Now think about this. That should elevate you. You are a sheep. You are impressionable. You are naive. You are foolish. You are constantly wandering away from your shepherd. You are time and time again worried about things you shouldn't be worried about, scared of things you shouldn't be scared about, sucked into stupid, sinful patterns that you know are wrong and that aren't good for you, and you do it over and over and over and over and over and over again, and Jesus knows all of it, all of it. And none of it surprises him, none of it freaks him out, none of it disappoints him about you because you're his sheep I know my sheep I know what they're like as a group but I know what each and every one of them is like individually now that should elevate you to think that he cares about you that much that you are that important to him of all the things that Jesus should be concerned about in a big bad universe like ours that he is completely and utterly committed and focused on you should elevate you, but it should also elevate you in a second way. Look what it says in verse 15 and 17. It says, Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life. For whom? For the sheep. Now, you go back to the Old Testament, the greatest shepherd of the Old Testament was David. David, King David. He was the greatest shepherd of the Old Testament. What did he do? He killed for his sheep. He risked his life and fought the lion and fought the bear to protect his flock. But he never died for them. He never died for his sheep. You see, Jesus is so committed to guiding you, to protecting you, to providing for you that he will do whatever, whatever, whatever it takes to keep you as his sheep. You see, our wandering that we do, it's, it's not just stupidity, okay? And you know that. You know that. When you wander from Jesus and you commit sin, very rarely do you at the other side of the sin say to yourself, oh, that was stupid. Well, you do, but you know that what you really mean was, I shouldn't have done that. Because why? Because very often, before you commit that sin, you're already talking yourself into it. 
you're weighing the consequences and weighing the pros and weighing the cons and thinking, well, you know, it's better to, it's easier to ask forgiveness later than permission and all this kind of stuff. You justify it. And then it's on the other side when you come through that you say, oh, that was stupid. But you know what you really mean was it was stupid of me to again believe the lie that disobedience is more satisfying than obedience. Our wandering is oftentimes far more related to rebellion than it is to just naivete. Sin is basically this. I want to be in charge. I want to decide what is right for me and what is wrong for me. I want to do what I want to do. I want to live for me. And that's running from our shepherd. But the great thing about Jesus is is he doesn't say, fine, stupid, do your thing, chicken wing. You want to wander off, wander off. You want to burn yourself, burn yourself. You made your bed, lie in it. What does he do? He chases us down. And he actually, because you see, the, the wages of sin is death, eh? That's what Paul says in the book of Romans. Our sin, our rebellion, it deserves death. And, and if Jesus were to just say, go, make your bed and lie in it, go wander off your, on, on your own, the result would be our death. And I'm not just talking physical death, I'm talking eternal death. I'm talking separation absolutely and completely forever from our good shepherd. But what does Jesus do? It says here, it says that the wolf comes in. When the wolf comes, sorry, verse 12, so when he sees, when the, when the hired hand sees the wolf attack the flock and scatters it, the man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the father knows me uh, and I know the father and I laid my life down for the sheep. This is what Jesus is saying. The wolf of death. The wolf of judgment is coming at us and we deserve it because we've wandered away in rebellion from our Savior. And what does Jesus do as the shepherd? He flings himself in the way of death and he allows the wolf to devour him instead of us so that we can be his. He says, I will not abandon you. I will be taken by the wolf myself to protect you. And you can trust me now because... I did it then. Do any of the hired hands we chase after promise that? Does money promise that if we fail it, it will forgive us? Does reputation promise that if we sully ourselves and do something foolish and make a bad comment on Facebook so that we end up canceled by the world, that it will say, They're there. Everybody screws up once in a while. You're okay. Jesus is the only shepherd. He's not a hired hand. He's a shepherd. And so he's the only one who lays down his life for us. And that elevates us. Your shepherd was willing to lay down your life. Yeah, you're foolish. Yeah, you're a screw up. Yeah, you're not all you want to be. man, you must be cherished beyond your wildest dreams that Jesus 
would go into the very mouth of the wolf and be devoured for you. You know that, uh, I always like to show how hip and up-to-date I am. So Bruno Mars, I'd catch a grenade for you, throw my hands on a blade for you. What else does he say? Jump in front of a train for you. You know I'd do anything for you. I would go through all this pain, take a bullet straight through my brain. Yes, I would die for you. No, you wouldn't, Bruno. But Jesus did. And I will just say this about the song. Why do songs like that get written? Because we all want that so bad. Last thing. In verse 16, Jesus says this. I have other sheep that are not of this pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. Jesus is the shepherd of a flock. He loves each and every one of his sheep individually, it's true, but he always, always, always loves a flock. Even in the the parable of the lost sheep in the 99, what does the shepherd do? He's got 100 sheep, one of them wanders off, what does he do? He takes off and he grabs that sheep, throws it over his shoulder, and he brings it home, back to the flock with you. Because you see, it's in the flock, it's here as we are gathered as the people of God, not just now, but in our life groups and whenever we meet as in for fellowship and friendship and whenever we meet to pray together because we're struggling and we need encouragement and support, whenever these moments happen, Jesus is there amidst the flock and he is guiding us, he is providing us for us and he is protecting us. You know, one of, the, one of the roles of a pastor, one of the, the names given to a, a pastor is an under-shepherd. And there's a place in, in Acts chapter 20 where Paul says this. He says, beginning of verse 28, he's talking to elders, teachers of the word. He says, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Listen to this. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. One of my jobs is to do what I'm doing right now, proclaim the word to you. Another one of my jobs is, is to protect you from false words. Feed, feed my sheep, Jesus says to Peter. But we can't do that when we're not a flock. You know, I, I, I really like, I'm, I'm into my podcast, and I hope some of you are listening to it and finding it fun. I try to keep it relatively short. Uh, um, and it's one of the ways I'm trying to fulfill this calling, but, but I got to tell you, it's not in those moments that I, I believe that we are the flock. It's in these moments that we are the flock. It's when we are gathered together in the name of Jesus that we are the flock. And if you say to yourself, well, I don't know if I want to do that. I don't know if I like that. I mean, I come here and it's complicated. I might end up in the overflow. <laughs> Sorry, overflow people. 
is it worth it? I might as well just do it at home. Can I tell you, you just haven't quite grasped the severity of what Jesus is saying about you. You still think you're not a sheep. But if you are a sheep and you believe you are a sheep, you will know beyond a shadow of a doubt. You will know, I am prone to wander. And therefore, I've got to be back in the fold whenever I can be with the fold. You know, if you know yourself, you'll know that about yourself. Some of the best communities are exactly like that. What do do you think the success of AA is built on? Honesty. Honest assessment of self and open vulnerability with the flock. Listen, I've confessed some of my sins to you because I want you to feel comfortable to confess your sins to me. If we're going to be the flock that encourages one another when we wander or struggle or are afraid of things, we need to be actually honest about ourselves the way the Bible is honest about ourselves. I'm not saying that you go to a life group and you just sit there and list off every individual sin you've committed last week. But if you're a worrier, you can share with your group, I'm a worrier. I need prayer for that. If you're, if you're prone to pride... If you're prone to greed, if you're prone to addictions, some of us in this room have addictive personalities. It almost doesn't matter what it is. Put it in front of us and we'll become obsessed with it. If that's you, it's okay, you're a sheep. Jesus already knows that completely about you. This is Grace Valley Church. Let's share that with each other and build one another up and hold each other together as the flock of Jesus Christ, who is our good shepherd, who has shown to us that it is safe to be truthful because he died for us, knowing who we are. Now I'm starting to babble, so let's pray. Holy God and gracious shepherd Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you have given us all that we need in our Savior. Thank you, Jesus, that you are a good shepherd willing to lay down your life for us. Father, may we be a flock uh, willing to be guided and directed by you and also looking out for one another, encouraging each other, maybe sometimes even correcting each other because we want to be together, because we know we can't be just wandering sheep on our own because the wolf is going to come in and he's going to pick us off. So, may we be a unified brother and sisterhood. May we be a committed community. These are all aspirational things, Father. We are going to fail along the way, but we thank you for your grace. Uh, your love covers a multitude of sins, and, and it will cover our sins that we commit against each other, too, because that is the dynamics of your kingdom. Thank you for all those blessings. In Jesus we pray, amen.